welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined remotely as ever by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, what's going on, man? That uh, that was a playoff ready howdy. You're you're locked in and ready to go. I like this. This is like your version of LeBron going zero dark twenty three or whatever the hell he calls it. Yeah, I'm in I'm in playoff form right now, as I'm sure you are, because the seeding stage has more or less come to a close. There is a slate of games today, but they're all meaningless. The seeds are all locked in for all but the eighth seed in the West, where the play-in scenario is also locked in. We're going to see the Portland Trailblazers take on the Memphis Grizzlies. The Phoenix Suns, despite going 8-0 in the bubble, have been eliminated from contention. And this was all pretty exciting, I think. And, And I do feel like the race for those last two play-in spots in the West. Like, that was the thing that I think generated the most interest and intrigue in the bubble. I will say, I found it slightly... I can't say it was anticlimactic, because it literally came down to one final shot at the buzzer to determine who that last team was going to be. But it did suck a little bit that so many of these games, and, like, so much of this was just decided by teams that weren't playing for anything and were resting their starters. And it, it, in a lot of cases, just sort of seemed like a formality that the teams that were involved in this race were going to win their games because the teams that they were playing against didn't care one way or another. So you saw, I mean, like, you know, Memphis is playing the Bucks on the last day of their seeding schedule and the Bucks, you know, I mean, Giannis is suspended. So I guess... That wasn't necessarily the Bucks' decision, but they played the rest of their starters like 15 minutes and then shut them down. Same thing with the Mavs who were playing Phoenix. And, I, you know, I think we thought that it was going to be a walkover for Portland as well against Brooklyn, but Brooklyn actually plays their guys for the entire game, uh, you know, maybe to get them a playoff tune-up and build some confidence for them ahead of what's going to be a pretty daunting playoff matchup against the Raptors. And... The Nets balled out and and really pushed the Blazers to the absolute brink, and it took some more heroics from Damian Lillard in order to pull that out. Yeah, first of all, good for the Nets. I mean, they went in from the beginning, say from before the game, saying they weren't going to lie down for any team, you know, that wants a favor. And and also, it just kind of makes sense when you think about it. Like, given how long the shutdown was, um, you know, a lot of these guys having opportunities they wouldn't normally have when the Nets are healthy. And in a situation where like, you know, okay, they're going to say what they need to say about thinking they can beat anybody and they're going into it. But deep down, you know, especially as an organization, they know they're most likely not going to even compete in the first round. So for them, it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Rest these kind of fun younger players because you don't want to risk or jeopardize your postseason aspirations. It's like, no, let them ball out. Let them play. Let them play as much as they want. And I kind of like that. And I like the spunk that they played with in pushing the Blazers literally to the edge and to the limit of their season. In terms of what you were saying with regards to it being a little anticlimactic in the sense that it, it was decided, you know, by incomplete lineups. Yeah, it sucks, but also it's like that it wouldn't have been any different had the regular season unfolded as usual. And this was four months ago in April, right? Like we see this every year. It's games, 78 through 82 basically are a wash like that and yeah and really i don't know what the nba could have done to mitigate well, I, that like yeah i mean i think that's a good question because i i do feel like this play-in scenario has been a resounding success just in terms of the interest that it's generated and so i think that that's probably something the league is gonna look to explore and and make a part of its regular season format going forward you know potentially as early as next season so I'm thinking about that and thinking about how it finished and wondering if there is some kind of tweak to that formula that they can make so that this doesn't happen where, I mean, let's say there are three teams or four teams who are battling for those two play-in spots and those four teams are all within like a game or two games of each other. Maybe there is some way that you can stage a tournament between all of those teams so that they actually have to play each other in order to get in rather than their fate being determined by which team does or doesn't decide to play their starters. Um, I, I like the idea of a play-in 
going forward. I think, like you mentioned, it's been a resounding success. The one thing I would say, and what I would like to see once the NBA gets back to a normal 82-game schedule, is um, that the play-in should be if the ninth-place team is within one game of eighth. Uh, I know this was different. They wanted, like the whole point of this was they wanted to give more teams a chance and to make more games meaningful. But I think um, I think if you if you make it so that it's like, you know, the ninth place team has to be within a game, uh, I think A, it makes sense like that because then, you know, if the ninth place team finishes only a game back and then wins two games in a row, like that's fine. They deserve to be in the playoffs. I, I think it would be weird in a normal season if like the eighth place team finishes three or four games clear of any non-playoff team and still has to play for their playoff lives. And also I think what would be cool if they, if they decrease that number to one or even two games is, you know, you wouldn't get a play in every year and it would make it a little more special when it does come around. I don't necessarily want it. Like I I don't want it to become a staple going forward. I do like the idea of like, you know, the ninth place team has to be within a certain range. And I would hope that's the only thing I would hope is that in a normal year, the range would come down so that it, it, it doesn't lose its luster too quickly. I agree. And I do think, you know, between the two conferences, you would probably get a play-in scenario most years. The other option, I think, you know, what if you opened up the eighth seed in both conferences? So if you have a situation like this year where the bottom of the East bracket is like so much worse than it is in the West bracket. I like how you said this year. <laughs> most years. This century. You know, if you find if, if you wind up in that situation where, where the bottom of the east bracket is so much weaker you give one of those west teams a a chance to jump into the east bracket and i i know like there are going to be travel concerns which is you know the whole reason that the league hasn't wanted to mix conferences and do one to 16 seating in the past but i don't know for one first round series to make things a little bit livelier and and make sure that the playoff field in general is like a little bit higher quality I don't know. I guess that's that's unfair to like the East team that finishes with the number one seed, right? Just adding so much extra travel for that team yeah. as a reward for finishing first. Exactly. And that's the issue, right? Like the, the team that squeaks in from the West would love it because, you know, they travel because it means two home games for them too. And, you know, the organization would like that and the postseason right. revenue that comes in. Yeah, but it would suck for the one seed. And, you know, I... I I know a lot, like no one wants to hear anything about like excuses for the Lakers for sure, because most people think the media has some like agenda to support and defend the Lakers at all costs. I mean, neither of us have ever been Lakers fans, you know, we're just media people. But the one thing I will say that, you know, like this year's a good example, even the Lakers. Okay. There's no excuses. They should beat either one of Portland or Memphis pretty handily, but you know, it's pretty unusual that out of the 16 playoff teams, you know, the one that won't be able to really prepare for one team until the day before the play is the Lakers, it is the one seed in their conference, right? Again, I know it's not necessarily the same as what we're saying where the one seed would have to travel to the West Coast from the East, but th- this is an example of when you do start tinkering, even when it's for the best overall, there are still like, you know, small repercussions that come from that. And this is an example, right? That now now your one seed in the West is the one team out of those, you know, playoff contenders that actually can't prepare for one team right now. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point and illustrative of the fact that even making a sort of small tweak to the regular season format can have ripple effects that affect a lot of different teams. So it, it's certainly not easy and you have to take everything into account. I do want to say, I mean, I've seen a lot of people suggest that the fact that the Suns went 8-0 in the bubble and still couldn't make it into the play-in is an indictment of the fact that they were invited into the bubble in the first place. And like, look, I think we both said before, before all this started that it was ridiculous that the Suns had been invited. And so it would be easy for me to you know, ghoulishly take that tack and say, well, yeah, I mean, it's true. As well as they played, they went 8-0 and they still didn't make it in, which is an indication that they shouldn't have been there in the first place. I think, you know, we were talking about that certainly from like a health and safety perspective initially and what it meant to include, you know, two additional teams in Washington and Phoenix and potentially, you know, a couple more that we didn't necessarily think deserved to be there because, of what expanding that bubble meant 
uh, and the risk of transmission and just how much harder it made it to keep a handle on things with an extra two teams there. But given the way all of this has been handled by the league, the fact that they have not had a single positive test over the past month now and have managed to keep that bubble sealed and keep everybody within it safe and healthy. I think this is a, a great outcome for everybody involved. And, and I think, you know, for the Suns to have been here and, and had the kind of success they've had and given themselves something to build on a potential springboard and a confidence builder going into next year. The fact that, you know, they were one of the most fun teams to watch in the bubble. Certainly, I think made a lot of new fans and for them, you know, as a way of drumming up interest going into next year, this was a great outcome and a great experience for them. So I'm not, I'm not down with saying that they shouldn't have been there in the first place, even though I felt that way in the beginning, I I'm happy to say that I was proved wrong on that account. And I'm glad they were there because first of all, without them, the plan scenario doesn't come down to that last Karis Levert shot that rims out at the buzzer. But also, I just really enjoyed watching them. And it's given me and certainly I'm sure people who've been Suns fans for a lot longer than I have, which, you know, for me, it's been approximately two weeks, a renewed sense of optimism about what this team can be in the future. Yeah, I've said it, I think, a few times throughout the year. But just as a reminder, it, Devin Booker had not want, been on a team that won even 25 games in a season until this year. Suns fans were starved. They were deprived. And... This run was, you know, obviously ends in heartbreaking fashion, but this run had to be fun for them. And yeah, I, I'm definitely not down with anyone who says, you know, them going 8-0 and still missing it is like an indictment of why they were there in the first place. It's like, you know, they, them being there added entertainment value and just added to the general excitement in the end. And that's exactly what the NBA was going for after four right. months without basketball. So those people can kindly get f I also wonder, like, do you think this is a point in favor of creating a midseason tournament? Because I do feel like that's almost what this became for Phoenix in a way. But okay, here's the thing. I get that, but at the same time, like it was still because they had the tease of the playoffs, right? Now, but what if what if what if there was something on the line like a couple of extra I don't know, lottery ping pong balls or the, the but why would why do the players care about that right that might not be there the next year i think here's the thing if you're gonna go with a mid-season tournament i, I think you might have to do something like it's like you you're guaranteed a playoff spot if you win that tournament no i'm <laughs> right. serious because yeah yeah what, what you end up with is okay like the teams that are contenders that have you know bigger fish to fry probably aren't going to care that much about this tournament but teams like phoenix you know teams that are like bubble playoff teams, young teams who maybe had already fallen out of the race, whatever the case may be, they're going to look at that tournament as like, hey, this this is our season. And, um, you know, whether you're down or not with a midseason tournament, you know, I go back and forth on it because on one hand, I think it just doesn't jive with like North American sports. But as a soccer fan, I also know how exciting it can be. And also, you know, this, the bubble is a perfect example of, and, and everything we were just saying about Phoenix, about why you should never be completely like against an idea, a creative idea like this until you try it. And yeah, look in, in European soccer, this is how it works. You know, like as a fan of the Italian league, for example, if anyone here is a soccer fan, like Juventus, who's literally won nine or eight or nine championships in a row now, the league cup. You know, Juventus will still win it, but they won't win it every year. And it's because, you know, if if they're the big team that's competing for the actual league championship and also the Champions League, I know soccer's different because there's like 11 tournaments going on at the same time. But you get my point. Like, th those teams can't worry as much about the League Cup, whereas like a third division side that literally this is their life could have the best little tournament of their of their careers because that's all there is for them. And it would kind of be the same in the NBA. If you give, you know, this year, if a team like Phoenix has had an opportunity to clinch a playoff spot by just summoning everything within them for like two weeks or whatever it is, I don't know. You're not going to sell everybody, but yeah. if it goes well and it's entertaining, you will. Right. And I think that's more what I'm getting at. And I'm not necessarily saying that like the midseason tournament is a good idea or that it would generate the requisite uh, player or fan investment 
like I was super skeptical of the seeding games in general coming into this, and I'll cop to that. Like I thought they should have just gone straight to the playoffs. I thought widening the bubble to include six extra teams was a mistake. I didn't think that the seeding games would be high quality. I didn't think a lot of the players on locked in playoff teams would take them particularly seriously. And I was wrong about pretty much all of it. And I think change is scary and people are always going to push back against it. But it's hard at this point not to have faith in the league putting out a good product, even if it seems a little bit gimmicky at the start. NBA basketball just finds a way to be great and to sell itself in new and interesting ways. So I think if anything, it's just made me more open to other possibilities in the future. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, We should probably, because, I mean, we're going to do a full first round preview early next week. I I don't know if, like, how much we're going to cover the Nets in that. Because, again, like, I don't think either of us give them much of a chance of even really being competitive against the Raptors in the first round. But this is a chance, I guess, for us to give them their flowers because... I fully expected the the only win that they got in the bubble to be the game they played against the Wizards. And I thought they would get absolutely destroyed by every other team. And instead, they go 5-3. and three, They beat the Clippers and the Bucks, and very nearly spoil everything for Dame Lillard and the Blazers. And I just think, given how depleted that roster is, given the fact that not only did four-fifths of their starting lineup not enter the bubble with them but on top of that like even some of the players that they signed just to play for them in the bubble didn't end up making it in Michael Beasley didn't make it in Jamal Crawford barely played and somehow you know the likes of first of all Karis Levert was great and and Joe Harris was great and Jared Allen played really well so like the guys who were actually part of their team were good but these guys who they just plucked off the scrap heap like Tyler Johnson and Chris Chioza just propelled them to a five and three record in the bubble that to me, like I, I said this on Twitter, but I think it's maybe the single most improbable thing that's happened all season, which includes the season being interrupted for more than four months <laughs> due to a global pandemic and restarting inside a bubble at Disney World. Okay, well, I'll say this. I, I will probably spend a few minutes talking about the Nets in Monday's um, playoff preview podcast, not because I think they're a threat to the Raptors, but I think there are some interesting numbers and things to get into there about the way and the style they played in Orlando. But all I'll say for now, uh, in terms of giving the Nets their flowers, is also give Jacques Vaughn his flowers, because this is a guy that had a very uninspiring stint uh, as a head coach in Orlando. And I don't think anyone really saw as the kind of guy that was going to get a second chance at being a head coach in the NBA, you know, ends up as, as an assistant in Brooklyn and takes over for the departing Kenny Atkinson midway through the season, which in and of itself seemed like a gong show, then kind of inherits this team that was already very much in flux, given the Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving stuff then takes this team into this unprecedented Disney World bubble where, as you mentioned, they were already missing 80% of their starting lineup and then lost the guys that they had signed to replace some of those guys. Ends up with a ragtag bunch of players that we thought was going to go 1-7 in or potentially 0-8 in said bubble and instead gets them to play like very inspired and, again, we'll talk about it Monday, but very interesting basketball that I think lends itself to at least being pesky. And last night, or you know, whenever you're listening to this, Thursday night was a perfect example of the way Jacques Vaughn's gotten this very surprising team to play. So shout out Jacques Vaughn. I, maybe he's got no chance to actually get the head coaching gig on a full-time basis. He's currently the in- interim guy. And I know that, you know, look, for Brooklyn, they absolutely need to nail that coaching higher given the expectations that will come with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving healthy but I hope um, if nothing else Jacques Vaughn has you know maybe earned himself some cred as a guy that might still be able to be a head coach in this league yeah I mean even if it doesn't happen with Brooklyn I think the important thing there is I, I totally agree he's done a fantastic job if we were giving out hardware I don't think they're giving out a bubble coach of the year but if they were I think 
Jacques Vaughn is the runaway winner of that. Maybe not the runaway winner. Wow, ahead of Monty Williams? Monty Williams deserves a lot of love, but I actually think that Jacques Vaughn had a harder job in the bubble and would be wholly deserving of that honor for how hard he got that team to play. But I, but I think, as I was saying, like the, the important thing is, you know, the Nets aren't hiring their next full-time coach to coach the likes of Tyler Johnson and Chris Chioza, et cetera. You know, like they, they're hiring somebody to coach Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. On a very uh, important side note, I think it's Chris Chioza, and it makes me wonder, is, is Chris Chioza a Pison? I don't know. I mean, you, you have to do your own investigation there. I don't know if you were watching <laughs> if you were watching the broadcast. Uh, I can't even remember actually who they were playing against, but it was Chauncey Billups on the broadcast and called him Chorizo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. If uh, you're, you're having trouble pronouncing his name, just go with that, yeah, I guess, I'm, from now I'm, on. I'm but, pretty confident it's Kiyoza, and that makes okay. me think that there is uh, some Pison lineage there. Um. Let's. I think that talking just talking about coaches in general is maybe a good segue to talking about the Chicago Bulls, who finally, after much dithering, have fired Jim Boylan one year into the extension that he was ludicrously handed after a disastrous partial season at the helm in Chicago. Uh, he finishes with a thirty-nine and eighty-four record with the Bulls, and many not so ringing endorsements from the players he coached along the way. I know like there were reports that ownership wanted to keep Boylan on for financial reasons because of that extension. And because, you know, in the midst of COVID era austerity, the team didn't want to pay two head coaches at the same time, Uh, but they did fire him. So their new GM, Arturis Carsonovis, finally will get a chance to put his stamp on this team. Carsonovas is actually president, right? And Mark Eversley right, right. Is, is GM, yeah. Sorry, sorry, you're right, you're right. But I do, th- I mean, Carsonovas is the top basketball yeah. decision maker at the end of the day. So, um, I mean, they'll, they'll make that decision, I guess, in conjunction. But I do think Carsonovas is going to have final say. And I, I don't think I need to ask you whether you think this was the right decision. So why don't we just jump ahead to uh, what type of coach the Bulls might be looking for in order to replace them and who might be some candidates for that. Look, I think they need to, and it's easier said than done because you know I can't sit here and tell you who the best development coaches are um, in the NBA, but I think they need to find a coach who can truly develop talent. Ideally, you find a coach that can develop talent and then still be the head coach when this team is ready to contend years down the line. But I think right now, first and foremost, you need to find a head coach that um, has a track record, whether in another league, whether as a head coach, whatever the case may be, as a guy that can develop young talent because the bulls need that desperately. Because as I've said before, I, I, I think I have more faith than most in some of the bulls, young talent. And I'm not talking about like Zach Levine. I'm talking about Kobe white and Lowry Markinen and Wendell Carter jr. Uh, Markinen, you know, is a good example of a guy that took a step back this year and, and Boylan in general, like just is not a good player development coach. And, yeah, I don't want to get too much into this again, but it's just so much of what he did and what he said. It was just so fraudulent. He was a fraud, in, and I don't mean that in like a personal way. I mean that on a basketball level and on a coaching level, you know, like this doing things like making your players clock in and instilling the values of hard work, like that doesn't actually make them better basketball players. Sure, it's maybe good culture stuff if you do it right, but you do need to develop the talent at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, to move forward in the NBA as well. And he showed like literally zero ability to do that. And I also, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think that kind of red ass drill sergeant style of coaching just doesn't really work anymore. Like the league has changed so much. And I think, you know, that coaching philosophy is very out of vogue. And for that reason, I'm really interested to see what happens with Thibodeau in New York. And that's something we haven't really talked about, but like the Knicks gave him a five-year deal and he's going to be taking over a very young team. And I I like, I think that's going to require a lot of adaptation on his part in terms of his coaching philosophy. And I, I just, it didn't ever seem like Boylan was the right cultural fit for this young Bulls team. 
I mean, may, yeah, maybe they they just sort of look to make a shift toward uh, a more player friendly approach. I think Kenny Atkinson is a name that jumps out to me as 100%. like he's he's proven to be a really good developmental coach and has proven that that he can get the most out of players. And you know, you mentioned the guy like. Markinen, I do think his disappointing season had a lot to do with injuries. Like he just couldn't really get fully healthy this year. And Levine, look, frankly, like Levine is probably the best player on the team right now. And if that's going to continue to be the case, like they need him to be better. Like they need to get more out of him at the defensive end of the floor. Like they need him to be a more advanced playmaker. They need to bring along guys like, like Kobe White and get buy-in from him, you know, at both ends of the floor. Like they, they, they need to form, I think, a more cohesive identity than what they've managed to put forth uh, in the last few years. And Atkinson's a guy who I think could help them get there. Uh, but also I think it's entirely possible that they don't go with a retread candidate and maybe look instead to plumb the, uh, assistant coaching market or the college coaching market. I know like one name that people have sort of mentioned as like a popular assistant coaching candidate who may be in line for a head coaching job is Wes Unsell Jr. And he is an assistant with the Nuggets. So Carson Novus would be really familiar with him. So maybe that's a guy that they'll look at. Um, and there are, you know, the other assistants that always kind of seem to be on teams radars, like M.A. Udoka, Becky Hammond. But anyway, uh, so that's that's where the Bulls are at. Uh, I think, like you said, I, I, there is a decent amount of young talent on this team, some of which I believe in, some of which I don't entirely. But they're they're far enough along in their development curve that they should be showing more progress than they've shown so far. So I guess we'll we'll have to see what direction they go and what that says about how they see this team taking shape in the next couple of years. Yeah. And having a coach that can teach them more than just how to try hard will help. <laughs> What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's talk about bubble awards. The NBA is going to award uh, an MVP for these eight seeding games, and they're going to have two all-bubble teams. So kick us off here, Cash. If you are a voter, who is your bubble MVP? It's got to be Dame. I, I know Devin Booker was the best player on a team that went 8-0 in the bubble, but it's got to be Dame. He went for a 50-pointer and a 60-pointer back-to-back. He ended up averaging 37.6 points, 9.6 assists, 4.3 rebounds, and 1.4 steals on 50-44-89 shooting. Led Portland to a 6-2 and record. and the eight seed, essentially. I mean, they still would have the play in for it, but given everything and the way he really single-handedly carried the Blazers on some of these nights and dragged them to the finish line of the seeding games, I think it's got to be Dame. You know, he played 41.7 minutes a game. And you mentioned, you know, shooting 44% from three. He did that on 12.6 three-point attempts per game. Insanity. And I think a whole bunch of those were like 30 footers or further. Logo and, and I mean, you saw like in that game against the Nets when they're throwing all this defensive attention at him and just daring basically anybody else on the Blazers to beat them. And the rest of the Blazers supporting cast is shooting the ball really poorly. And so Lillard's like, fuck this. And, and like basically before the Nets can even bring the trap, just pulls up literally from 40 feet and bangs a three. So like the next possession down, the Nets literally have to trap him in the backcourt. He's just been doing that all the entire bubble. He said at the beginning, you know, you saw like that little birthday party that the Blazers had for him when he turned 30. And he said like, this is my one birthday wish is like, let's not waste our time out here. And he absolutely did not waste his time. He was the best player in the bubble. He, shredded every single kind of pick and roll coverage that teams threw at him, whether 
it was blitzes that he, you know, he was able to split the double teams or just turn the corner and beat them on his own or pass out of them, making pocket passes, uh, you know, making dump offs off of drives, driving all the way to the bucket, hitting ridiculous pull up threes. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous start to finish. And I, I think that's, I, I really think that's the only answer as good as Devin Booker was. I think, uh, I think it's gotta be Dame. Yeah. And look, if, um, you know, like some of our esteemed um, veteran colleagues in the industry who believe this award should be the most valuable narrative, um, Dame Dame also has that check too, you know, between like the Dame time, the, the clutch heroics, you know, manufacturing another beef to be a chip on his shoulder this time with Skip Bayless. Uh, also, if no one knows what the hell I'm talking about, Ramona Shelburne said she voted for LeBron James for MVP because of... She's more of a narrative-based voter. Anyway, yeah, it's Dame. Whether you want to go by the numbers or the narrative. Yeah, look, I I don't think that narrative should be like the only component that you vote based on. Definitely but, not. But I think it's also foolish to pretend that narrative doesn't matter at all. I mean, it, it's kind of a narrative-driven league. Like I know, like guys, like we we obviously care about stuff like you know, numbers and efficiency and how players affect their team's performance overall. We take all that stuff into account, but to, I don't think it's sensible either to just like dismiss the storification of the league and how much those stories matter. And this is entertainment at the end of the day. Like these players, like their jobs are to perform on the basketball court, but it's also to move people. And I think, yeah. I think that does matter. And I, I just say that like Lillard, like you mentioned, married both of those things. I think it, it was not only like an incendiary performance from a statistical standpoint, but I think it was inspiring. And look, the Blazers needed everything that he gave them because they wound up going six and two in the bubble, but I, I they didn't win a single one of those six games by more than eight points. And you can say that part of that is Dame Lillard's fault because the Blazers' defense was terrible and that's why they needed his offensive heroics and Lillard was a part of that Blazers' poor defense. He has not been good defensively. But I think that's excusable and understandable given the load he was carrying at the offensive end. And it just his performance in crunch time of these games, the way that he dragged them across the finish line time after time after time. As good as Devin Booker was and he he leaves the Suns to an 8-0 record in the bubble, he was exceptional every single game and completely changed the narrative about that team. He, he's a worthy runner up to me, but I do think Dame is the MVP. Yeah. A lot of times too, athletes, NBA players like create, um, whether it's like nicknames or slogans for themselves that they can't always necessarily live up to looking at you playoff P, but Dame coming up with Dame time and then also proceeding to be like just one of the absolute clutch icons of this generation is pretty damn cool. Definitely. Um, all right, let's quickly run through our all bubble teams here. Well, we just uh, knocked off one of the five. Uh, well, I, we can say two, I think, because I, yeah. I, I imagine we both have Lillard and Booker yeah. on the first team. And as I understand it, their positions aren't going to play a factor in these teams. I, I don't know that for sure. I've just seen that basically on NBA Twitter. So <laughs> don't hold me to it. But I'm approaching this as if positions don't matter. So... My five on the first team are Lillard, Booker, James Harden, who very quietly was unbelievable in the bubble as well. You know, James Harden averaged 35 points and almost nine assists on a true shooting percentage of 72.9. It was insane. And it just, it just kind of flies under the radar because that's kind of just what Harden does. I mean, 72.9% true shooting. Obviously he doesn't, he, he doesn't quite do that. Uh, on that level of efficiency, but it's just become so normalized what he does on a nightly basis that it's almost like, okay, yeah, Harden averaged like 35 at nine on 72% true shooting. Yeah, okay, another day, like yeah. another Harden performance. But I mean, that was next level. Look, I, like the Rockets, I thought looked good in the bubble. They had a couple games where I actually think they looked great. That win over the Bucks was particularly impressive to me. And Harden's defense in that game was actually a big reason why they won. And I think that's something that deserves credit too. Disney World. So, go ahead. No, I was say Disney World's got to gotta hang his jersey from the rafters like that strip club did. Because it'll, 
Disney World, like that strip club, will never be the same after James Harden leaves it. Wow. Moving <laughs> on from that, <laughs> I'm, I'm rounding out my first team with TJ Warren and Luka Doncic. Oh, okay. Uh, Doncic, another guy who I thought, you know, just has kind of made it seem routine. The just outrageous stuff that he's able to do on a nightly basis. But I mean, this guy had a 30, 20, 10 triple double along with one of the most impressive individual passing performances that I've ever seen in that win over the bucks. And I thought he deserved inclusion on the first team as well. And and TJ Warren, I mean, literally keeping that Pacers team afloat. After they lose DeMontis Sabonis, Victor Oladipo is still, you know, very clearly not all the way back. And the Pacers still managed to have an impressive showing in the bubble and, and notch some really quality wins almost entirely because of what Warren was able to give them at the offensive end. Really kind of spreading his wings and expanding what I believed his capabilities to be as a guy who could initiate, run pick and roll, hit shots off of the dribble. And... I mean, his shooting numbers were completely insane. He goes 57.8% from the field, 52.4% from three on seven attempts per game. And I think the Pacers had a plus 14.7 net rating with him on the floor. So uh, I think he's definitely deserving of first team inclusion. Yeah, 100%. Warren has to be there. Um, you know, that's a team with Oladipo really not looking that great again that desperately needed an offensive punch and I don't know how many people thought TJ Warren could be that guy consistently well consistently for two weeks as the number one guy but he credit to him he was that and more Uh, in, in terms of Doncic so the numbers are there the only thing like and I guess it doesn't matter because we're talking about such a small sample size but the Mavs went three and five in the bubble and I think three and four maybe with him in the lineup Two and four. Yeah, and they got two, outscored two with him. Two and four. With they him got outscored with him on the floor. Yeah. And so, I don't know. If we're only doing like one all-bubble team or like top five players, it, it might be weird to give it to a guy uh, on a, on a loose. I could see the, the argument for putting Kawhi ahead of that's, him. I mean, the, so that's where I was going to go. Kawhi's numbers were very – they weren't bad. They were just very like ho-hum. It's not like he, you know – put up like Doncic, Harden, um, Lillard, Warren numbers in in this small sample size. He just kind of did what he does. But I will say that after the Clippers lost that opener to Bronze Lakers and after Kawhi really struggled in those scrimmage games, he kind of, in the rest of the seeding games, cruised back into like the most dominant two-way player in the game. If you watch it, and maybe he didn't do it consistently. He did it in stretches, but there were stretches of basically every game after that Laker game where you could watch Kawhi take over and be like, oh yeah, there's the guy that should maybe have the Clippers as being the championship favorite, as I know they are yours. So that's where I would have went to round it out. And then I I also thought about like whether someone from the Raptors, Celtics, and or Nets should be on the team just to like reward the teams that did the best. So I considered Fred Van Vliet, uh, Karis LeVert, and Jason Tatum as well. Yeah, I mean, so... I, I did have, I, I'm pretty sure the league's doing a second team. I mean, it um, seems ridiculous because we're talking about two weeks, <laughs> but let's, let's, let's do it if you're up. Um, yeah. My, my second team would be uh, Giannis, Kawhi, Embiid, Jokic, and Fred Van Vliet. Come on. We um, got to, we got to disqualify Giannis, man, for, although. Uh, I mean, he was incredible. Like, what do you want me to say? Yeah. I, the Bucks didn't have anything to play for. So it's sort of. I don't know what to do with that. I guess I could say like it didn't matter because they were always going to be the one seed. They didn't play their best and they didn't really need to. But Giannis, I thought was still incredible. This guy went Zinedine Zidane in a meaningless, <laughs> in a meaningless game. Never thought Mo Wagner would play the part of Marco Materazzi in uh, in the NBA. Yeah, well, I still thought, in spite of that, that he deserved to be there. Um, Embiid just like it kind of flew under the radar because the Sixers were just like a mess in general and uh, lost some winnable games. Their defense was a bit shoddy where we didn't necessarily expect it to be. And very quietly, he was extraordinary and really kept that team afloat, um, especially, you know, with his performance playing out of the post. And and Jokic, the same thing for Denver, just kind of like doing what he does. That team was playing basically without three of its starters for the entire time in the bubble. Uh, I guess Jamal Murray came back toward the end, but they were still able to hang in there because Jokic continues to be his brilliant self. 
And then I wanted to show some love to Fred Van Vliet, who I think I, I felt like I needed to put a Raptor there because I thought they played, you know, outside of one stinker against Boston, as well as any team in the bubble, they were magnificent. And I do think Van Vliet has been the best Raptor in Orlando, especially at the defensive end of the floor, where he's just been an absolute menace, both on the ball and as a help guy. So um, just to piggyback on that, um, I know we both shouted out our um, burgeoning YouTube page a lot uh, on this podcast in the last few weeks and months. But on that note, um, if everyone checks out today's or this week's episode of Unfiltered, it is on Fred Van Vliet and why um, any team with cap space, even ones that don't seem to have a need in the backcourt, should be ready to to pay him. And, and a lot of it does focus on that defense you're talking about, both on ball and off ball. Yeah, honestly, if you're not subscribed to the, the Scores YouTube channel at this point, I don't know what you're doing. All right, I think we should we should uh, cap this with just a brief preview of the play-in. What do you like? How should we call it? I've been calling it like the play-in scenario. I know people. Because, call, it's officially the play-in tournament, and that's got to right. be the biggest crock I've seen since Jim Boylan was running an NBA team up until four hours ago. Yeah, like I gotta look up the definition of tournament and see whether this fits because it's two teams playing. And it's potentially only one game, but you can't call it the play-in game because it might be more than one game. So I've basically just been calling it the play-in scenario, which I like the best. The play-in um, run at the YMCA. Play-in Saturday <laughs> afternoon run. The play-in situation. Yeah, I like uh, that. Let's talk about this play-in situation. We got Portland nabs the eight seed. The Grizzlies hold on when it looked like they might fall out entirely. They catch a break, essentially, you know, playing a skeleton Bucks crew on the last day of the season and they get the nine seed, but they do, you know, they went into the bubble with a three and a half game cushion for eight and falling to nine is going to make things considerably more difficult for them. So quickly let's get your prediction for the play in situation and maybe a little explainer on why you went that way. All right. I've got Blazers in two, which is the equivalent of saying in seven, if this was a real series. But uh, yeah, let's go in the distance. Yeah. I think um, we wrote about this in a, a play and preview we put up on the score app. But essentially, I I think the Grizzlies being in desperation mode and everything we've seen over the last two weeks, and maybe it's silly to tie like what's happened over two weeks in the bubble across the league to this like one matchup of these two teams but it just seems like given what we've seen the balls to the wall nature the teams in the playoff race have played at and um and also just given how uninspiring the Blazers looked in their own do or die situation against Brooklyn on Thursday night it's it feels weird for me to have watched all that and then think, ah, the Blazers will win this like routinely because they're the better team and it'll be over in one game and that's it. So I think the Grizzlies will push it to a second game. It's just that I wouldn't dare, based on everything we just said about Dame and why he's the bubble MVP, once it gets to that second game and a winner-take-all environment, I wouldn't dare bet against Dame, against a team that just does not have the goods to beat him. So um, having said that, if there's one thing that really concerns me, it's... It's in transition. I mean, the Blazers have been a joke in transition pretty much all season. They were, again, with their backs against the wall against Brooklyn on Thursday. And Ja Morant is an entirely different kind of transition threat. There's a reason the Grizzlies are top five, a top five transition team, whether you talk about frequency or point scored. And, uh, and yeah, so I think if the Blazers make like a concerted 48-minute effort to get back and actually treat the first game as them having their backs against the wall, then I think, yeah, I think they'll end it and it'll be done and they can just start prepping for the Lakers. But I just don't have faith in the Blazers to do that until Sunday with like six minutes left in the third quarter. Um, I'm going Blazers in one. Just to address, I mean, I think the Grizzlies transition game, I don't think is quite what it was without Jaron Jackson or Tyus Jones in the lineup. I think those guys have both been pretty instrumental to their ability to push and transition. You know, Jaron Jackson with his ability to run the floor as a big man and also just be a trailer who can stop and pop for threes. Tyus Jones is really good at pushing the ball up the floor. And their second units all season played super fast. And their bench has just been pretty lousy in the bubble. And I think missing him has really hurt them because they just don't really have a ton of playmaking on the second unit. But presumably they'll be running with a really short rotation in this game or these games. And that will help them. 
Uh, I do think, you know, with like the John Morant, Jonas Valanciunas pick and roll and Valanciunas' screening ability and Morant's ability to get downhill, that could cause problems for the Blazers' bigs. Like, honestly, Nurkic, as great as he's been and as encouraging as it's been to see him play as well as he has at the offensive end, to me has been really flagging defensively for the last couple of games. And it might just be because he's running out of gas, which would make sense after, you know, he didn't play for 16 months, just kind of being throwing into these games and playing big minutes. Um, Especially in that game against the Nets. I mean, like he was on fumes at the end of that game. And like Jarrett Allen, who's a beanpole compared to Yusuf Nurkic, was like beating him out for offensive rebound after offensive rebound in that fourth quarter. I think got like five offensive boards in that quarter alone. So that was maybe a bit of a worrying sign. You know, if he has to defend John Morant in space, then that could get dicey. Like I think the Grizzlies are going to have a chance to score a lot on the Blazers because the Blazers defense is bad and everybody has a chance to score a lot on the Blazers. But I don't know that the Grizzlies are going to be able to stop Portland. And I have more faith in the Blazers outscoring the Grizzlies than vice versa. I mean, Memphis is really like they play almost exclusively drop coverage in the pick and roll. That's been their MO all season. And it's not like there's been an answer to Dame in the pick and roll in the bubble. Like, like I said this already, every coverage has basically been picked apart by him, but I think the drop coverage has been particularly precarious yeah, go and, watch that highlights of him against the Mavs again. And the Sixers. Yeah. And so it's really important. Like, they're, they're, the Blazers are going to set those screens up super high on the floor. And if the Grizzlies guards, you know, whoever's guarding him, whether it's Jaw, whether it's Dylan Brooks, like, if they're not getting over those screens and, and staying in contact and providing some rear view contests, he's just going to walk into a ton of open pull-up threes. And I think that's going to be really dangerous for them. But the fact is like, I don't think that they have a viable alternative. Like I don't, it's not going to be beneficial for them to bring Valanchunas up to the level of the screen or have him hedge or trap. That's just not really his game. That's not where he provides value. So I I just think that it's going to be incumbent on their guards to, you know, essentially not get wiped out by screens so that Lillard is having a ton of space to operate. I mean, another thing is I just like, like the Grizzlies aren't, built necessarily to take advantage of what I believe the Blazers biggest weakness to be, which is their wing defense. And I think Dylan Brooks's eyes are going to probably light up at points when he sees like Carmelo Anthony guarding him or Mario Zonia guarding him or whoever it happens to be, because I think Gary Trent, you know, the Blazers best perimeter defender, he'll probably be guarding Morant a bunch of the time. And, you know, when Dylan Brooks thinks that it's Dylan Brooks time, which it's he, every time. It, all, the time. Does. <laughs> all the time. Um, it can really go one of two ways. And he can shoot the Grizzlies out of a game just as fast as he can shoot them back into it. And I think whether the Grizzlies get the good or the bad Dylan Brooks might be, you know, the single biggest X factor in this play in situation. But all told, I just, with the way Dame is playing and, and, Honestly, even McCollum, the way that he's playing with a fractured back, what the hell? Like, I, I thought, you know, he, he made some big plays, uh, at, honestly, at both ends of the floor down the stretch of that game against the Nets and deserves a ton of credit for the way that he closed out. So I, I think that I trust Lillard and McCollum, both of them, more than I trust anybody on this inexperienced Memphis team. So end of the day, I think that's why I'm picking Blazers in one. Yeah, uh, even, you know, to go back to Jaron Jackson, it really is a shame that he got hurt, obviously for him on a personal level, but for the Grizzlies as a team, like we were just talking about our all bubble teams. If you looked at the way Jaron Jackson was playing in those few games, you know, had he been able to do that over the course of the full two weeks, I think he probably would have made my all bubble team or at least come close. Like he was having a really, really good little run there in the few games he played and, you know, looked like Memphis's best overall player, not so much as a slight to John Morant, but just because Jaron Jackson looked that good. And it really is a shame for them after such a promising season that, you know, they're not going to have him now when in a situation where whether it's one game or two game, we're both expecting their season to come to an end without a playoff appearance. Yeah. And him being there just would have given the Grizzlies, I think a bunch more options in this matchup, you know, whether it's defensively, he, I don't think Jaron Jackson is a great defender, but he's certainly more mobile and fleeter of foot than Valanchunas. And he maybe gives them the option to do a little bit more blitzing and hedging 
And at the offensive end, you know, it gives them a chance to really stretch out those Blazers bigs. I do think, you know, Valanciunas is going to be super important in this matchup too, because if Nurkic is, is still looking like a little bit worn down and struggling on the glass the way that he did in that game against the Nets, Valanciunas is really going to be in position, I think, to hurt him in that way, uh, especially, you know, in terms of winning the rebounding battle and helping get the Grizzlies extra possessions, which I think that they're going to need. And, you know, particularly if Valanciunas is looking vulnerable at the defensive end, he's really going to have to make up for it on offense. Uh, I think he'll have a chance to do that. And if he does, then, you know, maybe the Grizzlies can hang. Yeah. And I hope they can even not just because, you know, I have a rooting interest in the series scenario, situation, tournament, whatever we want to call it. But um, just because I kind of want to keep the excitement going of what the bubble has provided so far. And I think it would, it would suck if after all that, you know, there's a blowout in game one of this potential two game series. So I'm hoping for everybody's sake that the Grizzlies can make this interesting and maybe even force a winner take all on Sunday. I wouldn't bet against it just because the Blazers like haven't blown anybody out. Exactly. In the well, they they don't defend well enough to. That's the thing. Like their defense has been so poor that they just haven't been able to get a ton of separation. So I do expect them to win in one, but I don't expect it to be a cakewalk. I think it'll be a tight game. And I guess uh, we'll see. We'll reconvene early next week and we will have an entire playoff field set and we will have eight first round series to preview. So um, Cash, unless you have anything else to add before we sign off here. No, I don't. Just that it's, uh, you know, after we went a long time not knowing whether we'd get to talk about real NBA basketball at all, you know, this season again, or even this year, it's uh, it's pretty cool that we got two really exciting weeks of NBA ball in the bubble are about to get the first ever play in and then are about to jump into what should be a fascinating playoffs. Agreed. And like I said before, I mean, I had a lot of skepticism going into this and honestly, I'm happily eating crow right now because uh, this has gone, I think, about as well as the NBA could have hoped. And I can officially say that I am excited for the NBA playoffs to get underway. So for now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Count the rocks.